0: Well, thank you all for being here. We're going to have to go through our sermon today really quick. So I'm only going to take 45 minutes. It won't be long. uh, But if you have your bulletin, what I'm going to do today, a little different, uh, I'm just going to read through. I'm not going to read the whole passage. We're going to read each section. And I'm going to walk us through this particular song. Dawson did a great job last week with those four verses. Very short well, let me tell you, it's it's not easy to preach through four verses, or like what they've been doing, giving me 40 verses to do. Both are both can be difficult and challenging, and so this one is kind of in between. But because of our shortness of time today, um, I'm going to read them one at a time. I put some headings in your bulletin to help you think about these songs. If you ever wondered what Jesus was doing up in those the mountains. You know, he would go to the mountain, he would go up and he'd spend all the night praying to his father. And if you're like me, I go, Yasha, how do you spend the whole night? I mean, even Jesus, how do you do that? I mean, prayer like five minutes, right? But all night? Well, with these songs, what you're what you're getting to see see the the Voice from Sinai is coming down. You pay attention. What you're getting to see in a lot of the scripture, Psalms especially, but in these songs, servant songs, you are hearing behind the curtain God and his suffering servant, his son, dialoguing, speaking, declaring, saying things to one another. It is absolutely stunning. And so I'm going to guide us through this, and I want you to imagine that you are uh, a fly on the wall, and you're getting to hear the Father and the Son singing to one another, speaking to one another. Uh, we don't really know, chanting to one another, but whatever it is, it was beautiful and profound and carried a message of salvation. So I invite you to look at the first verse, first couple of verses here, the truth about Israel, Jesus the suffering servant. Look at these first few verses. Listen to me, all you distant lands, pay attention you who are far away. The Lord called me before birth. From within the womb he called me by name. He made my words of judgment as sharp as a sword. He has hidden me in the shadow of his hand. I am like a sharp or a polished arrow in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel and you will bring me glory. In these first few verses, you're learning something about the truth about Israel with all the news uh, of Gaza and Israel today and the news that we've had over the Middle East over the uh, past 70 years, we have been consumed with the idea that Israel is a place. That Israel is a group of people as it is now ethnic Jews, mostly from Europe, East or Western Europe. And that idea has been so ingrained in the minds of particularly Western people that when you come to read these passages, you immediately start thinking about geography or about a group of people. I mean, after all, the Jews are God's chosen people. On the other side, over in the church, our little world, there are people that say, no, it's not that way anymore. Israel's gone. The church is now Israel. And that's called a replacement theology. It's a a dastardly heresy. And I advise you to ignore that. The, The church is not Israel. This passage tells you who Israel is in no uncertain terms. It makes us clear as a bell. The servant, behind the scenes, says to an audience, listen, you distant lands, you coastlands, Pay attention, you who are far away. The servant is speaking. The Lord has called me before birth. He's not talking about a nation. Although the nation prefigured this person, he's still talking about a person. Someone that God has known from eternity past, called from before he was born, while he was within the womb, to do something. To save. To rescue. To move out from the outside, as Dawson said last week, from the outside to the inside. What Bruce Waltke used to call eruption. Not eruption like a volcano, but eruption. The, the inflowing of power and strength and majesty from the outside in. You are my servant, Israel. You will bring me glory. He's talking about a person. Not a place. The place prefigured. So is the church the new Israel? No. Jesus Christ is the new Israel. He is the true vine. Out of Egypt I have called my son. He was talking about Jesus. And he was talking about this reality that all of history, all the people of God, all the people that have ever trusted me are going to funnel down into this one man. And if you want to be one of the people of God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, in the ancient world, it was just two kinds of people, Jew or Hebrew, more specifically, Hebrew and, and Gentiles. And so if you wanted to be a believer, whether you were a Hebrew or whether you were a Gentile, you had to trust God Almighty, the God who appeared to Moses, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this God. When when Jacob was returning from his sojourn in Ur of the Chaldees, far away, with his uh, grandfather um, Abraham's family, and he was bringing his wife and all of his kids back and all the 12 kids, you know, all these kids. He sends them all ahead of him because he didn't know if his brother was going to kill them all or not. So he said, he's really a brave guy, right? Here, you guys go first and I'm going to stay back here. It really wasn't like that. He was sending them to show his, his obeisance, his humility before his elder brother Esau. And he stays back and he spends the night. And you all have heard probably in Sunday school, maybe your whole life in church, that Jacob wrestled with this angel that appeared. And they wrestle all night long and Jacob will not let him go. And it seems like Jacob is having victory over the angel. So the angel stretches out his hand and hits him in the thigh and dislocates his hip. And then Jacob lets go and the angel takes off. But Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And God at that moment changes his name from Jacob. And in the text in Genesis 32, it says, Your new name will be Yisrael. Yisrael is Hebrew for the one who struggles, listen, with God and is victorious the human being who will struggle with God and then be victorious over God? No. He is victorious. But there's something more in view. Jacob and his offspring, these covenant children that we baptize, these children that we Brought into uh, that, we will be bringing to Holy Communion. All of that, that is a sign and a seal to each and every one of us and to our children and to our parents that God has made a solemn vow, a promise to you. When you come to God, you can promise anything you want. Your promises are worth nothing. Say, Amen, church. Your promises are worth nothing because everyone in this room breaks their promises even to God. Yes? Or am I the only one? No, we all break our promises to God. He never breaks His promise and that's what makes it possible for you and I, listen, to come back after we break our promises. That's what clears the deck so that we can stand before Him. Victorious. Struggling with God, victorious in another's battle. It's profound. There's nothing like it. There's no world religion that comes close. Jesus is the true Israel. And if you want to be part of Israel, you must trust him the same way the 12 tribes had to trust him the same way Jacob and Esau had to trust him, the same way that Isaac had to trust him, the same way that Abraham had to trust him, the same way that Enoch or Methuselah or Seth or any of the patriarchs, anyone who has ever been part of Israel has had to trust God and now his son who is true Israel. There's never a better time than Christmas for us to take everything we know about Almighty God and all our thoughts and all our hopes and all our dreams and and pull them down into this singular focus on the God-man. As we've done in years past, cur deus homo. That's what it Anselm asked, why the God-man? He wrote a whole thesis on it, magnificent if you've never read it. Why the God-man? So that we could be chosen. Because he is the chosen. You can't be chosen outside of the chosen. In him, you're chosen. Look at the second... uh, and, and, And furthermore, his struggle, his victory, his work, his... His hardship on this earth does not mean that you're going to be all your troubles are going to be swept away that 's promising too much and Unfortunately, in the American church, there are churches everywhere that will promise you the sun, moon, and stars and give you money and perfect health and cars and beauty and all of the prosperity you want if you will just give us ten percent of your paycheck now, Christ the king, we want a lot more than ten percent but no. They overpromise and they underperform. They say, Y'all come to Jesus, all your troubles will be going away. Well, folks, I'm here to tell you I'm your pastor, or hopefully you'll let me be your pastor after I say this. Um, your troubles, when you come to Jesus, they just begin. But instead of your troubles meaning nothing, and believe me, they mean nothing. Unless you belong to him. You belong to him, and all of a sudden, your struggles are not worthless. Your struggles are not empty. When you close your eyes in death after a lifetime of struggling, you are victory. Because another struggled for you, as you, in you, through you. His struggle was redemptive. Our struggle. Is because He is redemptive and because we love Him and we're going we're to reflect and recapitulate. There's a big word for you. His life in this world now, here, so people can see it. Salt and light, especially at Christmas. Never a better time. Look at verse 4. Here's the servant speaking back to God. God has just said, "You're going to do all these great things, you're going to bring me glory." And here is the servant. Here is Jesus behind the scenes, speaking to his Father. Imagine up on one of those mountain tops alone at night, freezing cold, got his, his robe around him, and he's talking to God, and here's what He says to his father: "Lonely, empty. My work seems so useless. I have spent my strength for nothing. These are not words from the cross. These are words during the height of his ministry. When he's up on a mountain, he's tr- he is exhausted, he is frustrated, he's disappointed. All of the things that we, under- that we go through in our life, this man is experiencing. And he goes straight to his father and he says, my work is for Nothing. Nothing's happening. I have spent my strength for nothing and to no purpose. In other words, it's meaningless. Yet, thank God for those words in our Bibles. these little words, yet, but, nevertheless, you know, these words, yet, listen to what you're saying, the truth about Jesus, faith. I will trust in all the Lord's hand, I will trust God for my reward. I will take my life. This is your savior. I mean, this is the this is the person who created the universe and he puts it in, in place and he speaks it into existence. And then he comes down as one of us and has to put up with all the vagaries of being a human being. And he goes to his father in prayer, just like you, and he says, Everything I'm doing is for nothing. I'm so frustrated. I, I, nothing seems to be working. Trusting God, folks, is not so. Jesus didn't have some mystical, supernatural ability to trust God any more than you do. He just made a choice like we do every day. When we get out of bed. I'm going to trust the Lord today with all my mess and all my successes, the good and the bad. I'm going to walk with Him. I'm not going to be stoic. I'm not just going to grin and bear it and put up with it. No. I'm going to go forward in faith. I'm going to weep some of the time. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to dance. Uh, I'm going to have a, gl- a cup of wine and, and, and it relax. I'm going to do all the things that normal humans do. But my focus is on Him. Yes? My focus is elsewhere. And if anything's wrong with our generation today, I didn't bring my phone up here because you know what it is. It's selfie, selfie, selfie. No, per, no better word to describe our lives today than selfie. And all he's asking is for you to take one lousy minute out of your life and put it on, put your gaze on something else than yourself. Yeah? That's pretty weak, you guys. Come on, let's act like Pentecostals. Yes! yes! Hallelujah! Of course! I mean, don't you get weary? Don't you get tired of always looking at you? You're not that great. You can tell yourself you, you, you are, but you're really not. Wait 20, 40 more years. You really will not. Jesus made the same choices we make. He chose to put his life in God's hands. On the cross, he said, Into your hands I commit my spirit. He he was singularly doing the same thing we do, but without fault, without ever going back. He pressed ahead, even though he was frustrated, disturbed, felt like his life wasn't going anywhere. Why? Why? Not so that you would never struggle like that, but so that when you are struggling like that, you have a servant who you know was in the same room with his father and they're singing to each other with you in mind. So that you could struggle and that you would know that that struggle is meaningful. It's not meaningless. That you could entrust your life to God even when you're doubting knowing there was somebody who did not doubt. He struggled, but he didn't doubt. At the end of the day, he stepped up and said, I will trust you. What Dawson and I ask you to do every week in this church, just trust. Trust him with your mess, and trust him with all your glory. Trust him with your riches. Trust him with your sadness, your grief. Look at verse 5 and 6. Now we're going to look at the truth. What was it the servant, Jesus? What did he believe? What substance was behind his beliefs? Listen. The servant, now he's speaking. He says, the Lord speaks. The one who formed me in my mother's womb to his servant. He's telling you what the Lord said. Who commissioned me to bring Israel back to him. The Lord has honored me. This is Jesus talking to you and I about what the Father said about him. It's fascinating. My God has given me strength. He says, now Jesus is going to tell you what God said to him. You will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. You will do more than that. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. You think he just came down? He's frustrated. He's struggling with the same emotions and everything. And this is what God is telling him uh, Your load, the load of bringing Israel and covering all their sins, is not enough for you, my son. I'm going to put the whole world on you. It's not enough. Israel's not enough. I'm going to put it all on you. Not just now, but forever. As long as there are human beings on this earth. You will die and bear their burden. And he says this. Jesus. Listen how he responds to that. that weight. My God has given me strength. He says to me, you will do more than restore the people of Israel. I will make you a light to the Gentiles. The Lord, look at verse 7 now. You're inside the conversation. The Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel says... To the one despised and rejected. To the one that's going to redeem the world. Here's how you're going to do it. Son of mine, my beloved. I'm going to give you no weapons, no army. No clothes. No money. No friends. No justice. I'm going to give you no mercy. I'm going to give you nothing but a ravaged body that everybody, including those who said they would love you and would go to the ends of the earth for you, I'm going to take it all away. And I'm going to give you pain and sin and heartache and struggle. You're going to wrestle and I'm going to wound you. You're hearing the dialogue behind the scenes between a father who loves you. And he loved his son, but he knows that there's no way to get you back without this, this price. And his son, our Savior, the little babe in the manger says, Yes, I love them too. And I'll go all the way for them. Do you know why Christmas is so beautiful? Because of the ugliness of this. That's why it's so beautiful. That's why we should rejoice at Christmas. We think, my God, my God, how, how much you have loved me. And this poor world, all of its mess, Gaza, and, Ukraine and and Palestine and Israel and all the mess and in our own country. How could he love this mess? I'll tell you why. Because he sent his son for us to do this. Kings will stand before and stand at attention. This is what God promised Jesus and what he hung on to while he was hanging on the cross for us. Princes will bow low. They will prostrate to the Holy one of Israel who has chosen you. What was impossible for anyone else to do for Israel, Jesus could do, but it was too small. God saw in his son majesty and glory and renown and power and strength that we will never see until we die and open our eyes after death and look into his face. Then you will see it. Then you will say, oh my goodness, this is who he was talking about. And from then on, in eternity, you will praise his name. Amen? So let me finish with this. I love to uh, quote James Stewart, one of our old Scottish pastors and theologians. And listen to what he said about our Savior. What kind of man is this? All man and yet all God. He brings together in his being a startling coalescence of contrarieties. In Jesus we see that he was the meekest and lowliest of the sons of men. Yet he spoke coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere. That they said the demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial. So winsome. So approachable. That the children loved to play with him. And the little one nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so kind toward sinners. Yet no one ever spoke So red hot scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet he demanded of the Pharisees how they would escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions. Yet for stark realism he has all of us stark realists Soundly beaten. He was the servant of all, washing the disciples' feet. Yet he masterfully strode into the temple, and the hucksters and the money changers fell over one another in their mad rush to get away from the fire that blazed in his eyes. He saved others. But at the last, he himself, he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrast that confronts us in the Gospels, the mystery of Jesus, man, and God. Will you trust him? We hope you will. Let's pray. Father, you deserve all of our worship and our glory and our lives and we love you and thank you for all that you have done. And the reason we rejoice, Father, is because of that love and that love was born not in a place, but in a person. A person who struggled like us and yet was victorious. And here your people are today, Father, and we ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith with this, the body and the blood of our King given for us. Amen.